Good evening, good afternoon, good morning to everyone who is listening in today. We are here yet again with another episode of Two Developers Down Under. That's my dog dropping things in the background, but I am also joined today with the entertainingly effervescent Kai Koenig. Kai, how are you doing today? Good afternoon, Mark. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm very, very, very well. Uh, we're doing yet another episode with a couple of our CF Objective ANZ Plus Flex presenters. Very excited. It's actually episode 14 already, so we are making really good pro- progress with those. I think we've managed to get through about 12 people so far. Yep. But uh, before we head into that, obviously we're going to do our usual What on Earth Happened Today segment. What have you found that uh, happened today? Um, I've got a few things, actually. In 1983, Richard Stallman announced the GNU project to develop a free Unix-like operating system. That's one interesting thing. And then um, the other thing was in 1938, the Queen Elizabeth was launched. I mean, the ship Queen Elizabeth was launched in Glasgow. Yes, 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 I see that. Which is quite interesting as well. And three years ago... Um, the first Chinese person did a spacewalk. Oh, cool. Yep. Stuff I've got today. Today is the 35th anniversary of The Muppet Show. Oh, that is really cool. I told you that was really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I thought that was that was pretty awesome. Um, and then we've got a whole bunch of, of singers and uh, musicians that were born today. Little Wayne, Avril Lavigne, and a personal favorite of mine, Meatloaf. Okay, not really Ooh. a personal favorite of mine, but <laughs> so a few people were born today as well. So a few interesting things happening today. Yep. Um, okay. Oh, moving along to our first speaker that we have with us this afternoon. Uh, we have, I'm going to butcher your last name. It's going to be fun. We have yeah. Phil Husler. Not even close. <laughs> you have a serious issue with, with European last names, Mark. <laughs> Apparently so. How how do we try that again? Hausler? Hoisler. Oh, jeez. <laughs> not even close. Just exactly like it's not spelt. Good. So, Phil, how are you doing today? You want to give us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're I'm good, to? Mark. Thank you. Yeah, look, I'm a, uh, I guess, developer. I've been developing uh, in the Adobe space now for quite a while, doing uh, Cold Fusion for, for um, – too long, I think. I've been sort of late uh, 90s. I started Cold Fusion, um, and look more more lately, just doing a lot of a lot in the mobile space and using uh, using Flash and Air and that sort of stuff to uh, to uh, make ends meet. But yeah, it's good stuff. Cool, interesting. So the other guest we have today is a returning guest, actually, the second person who dares to to dare to come back to our podcast after being on the on the show once. Hello, Sandy. Hello. I was so tempted to introduce you with some sort of weird Austrian title, like Frau Hofrätin Sandy Mamoli or something like that. But, you know, after having a quick discussion with Mark before we started the recording and the fact that he had no clue whatsoever what this was about, I just spontaneously decided not to do that. But still, you know, very well, it's very nice to have you back. And um, how are you today? Thank you. I'm quite good. I'm a bit disappointed I don't get any of your titles today, but uh, we can work on that, Kai. Yeah, I think so. That That's fine. Well, you know, when you come back the third time, I've got a bit of a plan how to introduce you appropriately. Yes, I'm scared already. <laughs> um, do you want to introduce yourself quickly for the listeners who haven't maybe listened to the first show you were on? Unacceptable. 
First of all, I'm Austrian. I wish I had a great title, but I don't. Um, apart from that, I'm an agile coach, and um, that means in practice that I help teams adopt agile, and I help organisations to um, refactor themselves to allow for agile teams. Cool. Very neat. That sounds okay. very interesting. Yep. So. We have two very different presentations from our, our two our two guests today, but I'm sure it will create some very interesting discussions. Um, Phil, you're talking about something geolocation-y. Geolocation-y, yes. What are you going to be talking about? Look, that could be way too know, many of your secrets. Yeah, too many of the secrets. Look, it's um, yeah, it's one of the the buzzwords in the, the HTML5 space at the moment, but. Um, what we're going to cover in the session is looking at what geolocation actually is and how you can use that in in your websites, in your apps, and and um, you know what 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 you can do more than just putting a, a pin on a map and that kind of thing. thing. So my intention, sorry, my intention here is to um, sorry, I'm getting feedback now. My intention here is to um, basically cover the um, client side. Uh, what you can do client-side in HTML5, that kind of thing, but also then have a look at what's what you can do in Flash, what you can do in Flex, what options are available to to do, you know, basically enrich the apps, the websites that you're building to um, to make them more, I guess, personalised to the people using them without them having to say, I'm from Australia or I'm from, from wherever I am, what's my state, that kind of thing. There are, there are plenty of options available to help sort of, I guess, take that burden off the user. And it's nice when you get to a website, if it's sort of rather than presenting you with the map of the world and saying, where are you? For most for most, uh, for most most uh, cases these days, it's, it's really possible for the, the website to actually work out where you're coming from. And so you just take a step out of the user's, user's um, task of needing to click where they are. So when we look at that from a technical point of view, how does it actually work with HTML or with HTML5 in particular? Uh, HTML5 has got all the the has built in um, geolocation APIs now, um, so you can query that in HTML5. You, you may anyone with a sort of a, a smartphone may have um, seen websites trying to do this on on the phones. It's possible on the desktop as well that you could basically make a request through JavaScript to the geolocation uh, APIs. The browser will typically warn the user, hey, this website's trying to access your location, yes or no. Um, and if the user does say yes, then the um, browser makes available to, to your code, you know, latitude, longitude, and, and what you do with that's, you know, up to you. Okay. Do you, do you find yourself building a lot of applications and content for normal desktop computers or laptops where, where you know, your clients want that geolocation feature? Or is it rather... <laughs> A typical feature of a mobile app or a mobile website. Look, it's I guess geolocation is is more pre uh, more predominant in the mobile space at the moment because that's sort of where HTML5 has really taken off um, mm -hmm. initially. Um, but the, la the later builds of of all the browsers now are supporting the geolocation APIs as well. Um, so I, I guess in the in the case where you're building sort of a desktop app, maybe geolocation is not so important because um, the person using the app is probably, if it's a line of business app or something, they're, they're going to be sitting in office somewhere. They're not geolocation really doesn't come into it. Yeah. Um, but you know, as an end user, uh, you know, there's definitely benefits for being able to um, 
leverage the geolocation of the user just for if if you're a business offering your your services over the web. I don't know how many times I've had to fill out a shipping form and then click the country list and then scroll down. I usually hit B and then I go back a few letters to get up to Australia. Um, there's no need to have to do that. You know, why can't the form just say, look, I can tell you from Australia, let's just pre-fill that form. It just makes it a little nicer customer experience. Yep. Generally, when you're talking about that, that's more like the server-side geolocation stuff. Like sure, the HTML5 sure. is more more your client side, whereas the, the other side's probably, actually, yeah, from where I've used it before, that sort of stuff, it's all sort of IP-based. There's some sort of lookup. Yes, it system. is. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, and just on that, there are um, freely available um, IP uh, lookup databases that you can basically uh, use with um, Cold Fusion or whatever server-side language you're, or platform you're using, um, and you basically just pass in the the incoming IP of the uh, end user, and it will give you back country, uh, state. Some will even give you down to city or suburb level as well, depending on um, on the service that you're using. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, what I find quite often, at least here in New Zealand with my provider that I'm using, it identifies me as Auckland and not sure. Wellington. So, you know, I think country works really, really well. City probably depends on, you know, how your provider is set up and where they how they route their IPs or something like that. I sure. That, that's exactly right. And um, th there are various levels. I mean, I've, I've sort of done research into what server-side options are available, and most um, providers do – IP providers do provide a um, a free service where you can. It's basically um, gives you sort of a high level, and and the the state or the city may be right or it may be wrong. Uh, and then there are these paid versions where you can actually go and um, get uh, apparently a finer detail, and, and it's likely to be more correct. But you know, I, I I have yet to know if that's actually the case or not. Yeah. But definitely at the country level, yes, it, it makes a lot of sense. To um, you know, at the server, there's no problem really, unless you're going through a proxy somewhere like that in another country. Um, you know, server-side country um, lo location identifying is is quite good. Yeah, why would someone go through a proxy in a different country? I couldn't see a, any I, reason for that. Not at all. No, I don't know if Mark's got any thoughts about that, but um, yeah. Yeah, I think particularly being <laughs> Australia and New Zealand, you know, being yeah. cut off from a few things. Yeah, well, you know, that's. <laughs> Yeah, most I think most of our um, experiences with with <laughs> with GOIP is sorry, you can't use this service because you're not in the United States. Exactly. <laughs> or you know, as a variety of that, you're not in the UK to watch BBC online or something like that. Yeah, yeah which is really annoying. So, but I mean, just on that, I think the uh, the variety of cloud providers that have popped up recently do do make that problem less of an issue if you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing. Exactly. Not that we'd advocate that sort of behaviour. Not at all. Not at all. No. Never. Um, uh, now, awkward silence. <laughs> awkward silence. Yeah. Um, so, so the interesting question maybe is: is do you think people get a little scared by this? Like they're sitting at their computer and they're like, "Wait a minute, you know I'm in Melbourne, or you know I'm in Wellington, or you know what suburb I'm in." Do you think people get a little bit worried? I, I, I probably think they do, but um, in all honesty, it's I guess it's no more invasive than any of the other. Um, uh, Internet, you know, ways to identify people on the internet now. Um, but I, I really, I mean, the more and more people sort of start using geo um, services on mobile phones and things like that, I really do think it's going to start becoming more and more common uh, on the desktop as well. E even so much as so is if I'm going to look up a company's contact details on the web or something like that, and they've got offices all around the country, why not just put 
you know, the, the one closest to me up the top as best I can. You know, it, it's a small thing, but it, it just sort of goes, oh, yeah, that's that's a number I need right at the top rather than needing to search down through the list. Yeah, makes life a bit easier. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, I'm, I'm not sort of advocating here, you know, websites tracking people or, you know, tracking them down at home, but, um, you know, that, that, that kind of thing is, um, is, is quite useful from an end user point of view. Um, you can then take it sort of a step further and go, well, I'm accepting this order over the internet for $20,000 on the credit card and they say they're in Australia but their IP, you know, is off in the Cayman Islands or something like that. So um, as a business, you can start making use of this information, these sort of services to say, well, hang on, how am I going to interact with the, with these customers coming in? Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. And I mean, when you, when, you have a, when you think about scenarios where people use geolocation or GPS to track lost devices, right? You leave mm. your iPhone somewhere and then you use Find My iPhone to at least know that you left it on your office desk and not in a random place somewhere else yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Or those randomly popping up stories where people get their phone stolen and mm. then they track it on Google Maps, you know, where the thief is taking it and stuff like that. Those yeah. are the best stories. Uh, I think, you know, that, that is actually really useful, you know, as one of the most useful features for geolocation that I can actually even remotely wipe my phone if I want to, if I have to. Without a doubt, definitely. Um, and, and more and more, I think anyone who's got a mobile phone, if they're under any uh, delusion that they're not being tracked is um, a little bit mistaken. The fact that the phones are always connected to cell towers and, and if you've got an iPhone or an iOS device, they're always talking back to Apple. Um, you know, you're, you're being tracked no matter if, if, yeah. if you want to be or not. Another awkward silence. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so I mean... Oh, sorry, I was, sorry. I was just, I was no. going to finish off. So in terms of what we're covering in, in the presentation, sort of we, we've touched on sort of client side and what you can do there, what server side options are available. And I'm also going to cover what you can do in, in uh, Flex and uh, Flash as well. Um, going and taking a, an air app onto a mobile, for example, does give you a whole the whole Flash geolocation um, APIs that you can get that information in Flash. But in the browser, in a Flex app or a Flash app in the browser, you don't have that um, those APIs available. So looking at how you can sort of leverage the HTML5 side of things with with um, Flex and Flash in the browser too. Okay. Do you when when you when you talk about things like HTML5 geolocation features, how does how do technologies like PhoneGap, for example, help you with that? Do they provide an additional benefit, or are they pretty much just like you know wrapping your mobile web page into an app for your for the phone. Um, I've honestly, I mean, I've I've actually been doing a, a few phone gaps app, a few phone gap apps recently, um, but I haven't dug into the um, what phone gaps geolocation um, APIs actually are. Uh, so I, I really can't say. Okay, um, fair enough. How, how the how the um, sort of HTML5 side of things differ from um, differ from going native through phone gap. Okay. Sandy, I'm sure you have an opinion on this. What do you have to say? <laughs> I wish I had. I don't. <laughs> really? You don't? Not at all? You're not scared of being tracked by, you know, Big Brother and the man? Actually, interesting question, Sandy. Android phone or iPhone? iPhone. I figured that. <laughs> and what? I... I have been tracked, actually. Um, last time, what was the conference we were at uh, in Sydney? WebDU? 
Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we were all at Jeff's house and I was home really late. So my girlfriend got worried about me being out at 4 a.m. and um, checked <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> Sorry, I was still at Jeff's house. So it was all good. I did, didn't know that. You didn't tell me that story. That how is did she, amazing. How did she manage to track you or you gave her like access to your iPhone tracking? Yeah, she's, yeah, she's got my, my password. In, uh, I thought it was actually quite smart. Her uh, getting worried I might get lost in somewhere in Sydney in a city I don't really know and finding out, yep, I'm still all good, Jeff's place. That is oh, really oh. cool. <laughs> That's good friends. Yes, that was okay. But um, apart from that... um. I, I'm aware that uh, people are being tracked. I'm aware I'm being stra- uh, tracked. I have um, – there are good signs and bad signs to it. And, um, yes, sometimes it can be a bit creepy, especially if you uh, look into the latest Facebook development. But overall, I think it's um, something we have to accept um, or completely opt out of uh, modern life. Yeah, that's what I find as well. And when you look at Facebook, for example – um, I mean, a lot of people always seem to hate it and say like, oh, I'm quitting Facebook and it's so invasive and blah, blah, blah. And then you still find them on Facebook like, you know, six months later. <laughs> so nothing has changed really. It's that initial wave of being annoyed by a change and by some new feature that creeps into your into your privacy. But, you know, hardly anyone's leaving at the end anyway. <laughs> yes. And I know it's happening, and if I if I want to have a break from it, then I turn off my mobile and I go off Facebook for a while. So I think as long as we're aware that everything we do, everything that's on the internet is can end up being public, as long as people are aware of that, then I think it's actually fine. This is this is actually an awesome app. If anyone's familiar with um, Robert Scoble, who's a social media guy, there's actually a website called isscobleinthisroom.com that somebody made that basically looks at your location, looks at his online activity, and tells you whether or not you're in the same room as him because he's he's relatively famous in tech circles. And I just like that's that's actually a bizarre use of some some wonderful geolocation stuff just to be able to go. Am I in the same room as Robert Scoble? Yes, I am. <laughs> I've actually got three um, um, young kids. Sorry, Sandy, just just butting in here. Um, and you know, the eldest now is is asking for uh, an iPhone or you know some kind of device because some of her friends are getting them now as well. Uh, and I'm all up for being able to track uh, track where my kids are when when they're um, in in a couple of years' time. Um, not necessarily to, <laughs> to to keep an eye on them, but if if something goes wrong or or they get lost or what have you, just having the um the the ability to um to see where they are at a glance. Um, would be a huge relief. I mean, I know when I was growing up, you know, I sort of went out of, out of a morning and my parents didn't see me for the rest of the day. And I don't know, these days, you know, that if, if you don't know where your kids are, you sort of look down upon, I think. So it's, um, it'd be nice just to have that um, bit of, uh, I mean, it's nice to have that uh, ability to say, well, yeah, I, I know where my kids are, they're safe. So you will probably become then one of those parents who stalk their children on Facebook just to get their Facebook check-ins to know where they are. <laughs> Look, um, probably not me. They're, they're, more than likely, their grandmother would be the one that's stalking them on Facebook. I'm, I'm all off Facebook now onto, onto Google Plus. So, <laughs> okay. Well, that makes all the difference. Yeah, I'm looking that's forward up, yeah. to if I have kids, you know, being able to remotely turn on their phone, you know, turn on the video, have a look at what's going on, listen to in conversations, you know, not just basically invade their privacy in any way, shape, and form. Look, I'm, I'm not. I'm not at all. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Most of the time, I, 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 I don't want to know what they're doing, but uh, as long as they they haven't hurt themselves, I'm happy. You know. Yeah, fair enough. 
It's an interesting change that. I mean, you know, I think back to, you know, when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah it was totally the same. You know, I'd, I'd go out in public transport, you know, 15, 16, 17. Yeah. You know, I was out, didn't have a mobile phone. I was out doing no, things. Exactly. I'd come home when I came home. You know, if I wasn't going to be home that night, then I'd call my parents and say, I'm hanging out with such and such. But, um, yeah, it's kind of, I suppose it's maybe a bit different now. I don't know. Not having kids myself wouldn't have a clue, but just an interestingly different world, I suppose. Oh, it's definitely different to um, you know when I was growing up. That's for sure. Well, we're, now we're starting to sound old. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. All right. Um, so Sandy, you're talking to us about agile methodology, something or other. I should probably look that up. Something agile, yeah. So um, <laughs> I I titled my talk uh, "Flexing Your Agile Muscle: Agile Technical Concepts Explained," and um. I have two official and one secret uh, uh, objective out of this talk. And uh, what I'd like to achieve is um, that during the last year, I worked with uh, an organization that's using a lot of flicks. And um, I saw people who seemed to have to, to be quite interested in um, technical concepts such as continuous integration, acceptance, test-driven development, and um, specification, for example, for, um, for example, and um, they had never tried it, and uh, they weren't given the opportunity to try it. And um, one of my objectives is to make people interested in those topics and um, to motivate them to actually try it. And even if they feel they have sort of uh, missed the bait a little bit, and um, that it is not too late for them to um, try it and uh, use those techniques. And Sometimes they're also being stopped by managers. So uh, I'd like to give those people the um, ammunition in a way to uh, sell technical practices to management. And the secret objective I have is uh, that we were developing um, air applications, like uh, apps that don't run in a browser. And there, the tool set for uh, acceptance test-driven development, for example, is non-existent. There's a little bit of development going on um, in um, something called Melomel, which is very similar to Cucumber. But overall, there is um, not a lot of tools around, um, and I'm competing mainly with uh, Ruby and Rails. And I'd like to somehow inspire the Flex community to go out and um, write those tools because I really like to use them. That is a very, very honorable objective from my point of view. That secret one in particular. <laughs> no, it's not I mean, so you're, secret you're, anymore. Well, yeah, that, the one that used to be secret. <laughs> because you're right at the end of the day. I mean, in, in, the, in communities like Rails, that whole agile movement and, tech, and agile practices from a technical point of view are sort of embedded and given. And in other communities, they're not. I mean, we find the same not just in Flex, but also in Confusion. Um, when you look at the amount of people actually doing something like unit testing or, you know, behavior-driven development or anything, even, you know, something simple as setting up a continuous integration server to build their stuff automatically, it's the vast minority of people. It's just what it is, you know, for whatever reason in the Adobe Confusion and Adobe Flex communities, it hasn't really taken off as much as it has in other communities. I don't know why. Yep. And I completely share that experience and uh, I think I said in the last podcast that I had to get off my high hawks because I basically showed up and I was used to um, a Ruby and Rails environment and I'd seen enough Java Java environments to know that um, those languages and frameworks actually come with uh, good testing frameworks, come with uh, a lot of tools, free tools that are really, really good. 
And uh, I was trying to get uh, the Flex developers to uh, use similar practices. And it took me a while to realize that it was almost impossible for them because um, their tools, the tools didn't exist and their, their hands were basically tied behind their backs. And what I had taken for granted from other languages just didn't exist. And I think um, it's nice that you think it's honorable, Kai, that I want to inspire people to do this. I'm not sure it is because it's still other people doing the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, like at least you're pointing them into the obvious gaps or towards the obvious gaps where there is a need to improve the tool set for, for Flex developers to you know, use all that type of stuff. True. Let's agree. I'm very honorable. Yeah, totally. Um, so your talk is basically then not really introducing agile concepts as such. It's more looking at the technical aspects and trying to tell developers why they are important. For, yes. You know, yes. Reps. And sorry. Yes, sorry. Uh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. And. Thank you so much for uh, saying, oh, actually, that's not really totally agile or because I totally agree. It's um, those are good programming practices and it doesn't matter which methodology or which framework you, you wrap around them. Even if you do waterfall, those are really, really good practices and I think everyone should do them. However, if you do agile development, I think they become even more important because when you then have those really short development cycles, when you uh, release all the time and uh, you basically tear apart your software and then have to build it up to uh, rebuild it and uh, you have to test it again and again and again, then it becomes more important to uh, even more important to use those practices because otherwise you'll spend so much time manually testing and regression testing again and again that I think even though those practices are not necessarily agile per se, I think they're prerequisite to um, do really good agile software development. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And you're totally right. They are, um, you know, the 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 foundations of software craftsmanship, craftsmanship really, and not specifically geared towards agile only. You know. Cool. Um, Mark was actually just secretly pinging me a quick um, chat message. Asking me, have we talked about our topics? <laughs> I can't remember. Have we? Yes. Like you mean, like my topic and your yeah. topic? Yeah, exactly. What are we oh, talking we are, about? We are the presenting, actually. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't... we are presenting. Oh, bug! I need to prepare something. Then. <laughs> you should do that. I need to present and prepare mine too. Um, so do you want to just mention quickly what you're talking about? Or oh, Mark, what's your topic? Well, gee, thanks for asking, Kai. That's a very interesting discussion. Um, uh, it's actually a topic that we've talked about previously on here. Um, I'm doing a talk on A-B testing with uh, an open source framework I've been working with and, and developing on called Squabble. Um, for those who may not have listened to a podcast before, uh, I do I actually do a lot of work and work doing a lot of A-B testing. So we're going to talk a little bit about like what A-B testing is. Uh, basically, A-B testing is, is pretty simple. It's basically where you go, okay, I've got, a, I've got an HTML page. It's great. I love it. 
but I wanted to improve. So I go, well, which, which, which is better on this page? Is it a blue button better or a red button better? Is this text better or is that text better? You know, what do we want to make either small or large changes on it? We need a way to basically be able to quantify what's the better change. You know, we can kind of guesstimate and guess and do all that sort of fun stuff. But we really need something qualitative that we can just be able to say, okay, yeah, we're, we're making more money with that change. Um, A-B testing is essentially a way to be able to do that. You actually provide, you know, generally speaking, half your users with one particular version or another, and then maybe, you know, four or five or 50, depending on how much traffic you get, different versions that you might show to users. And then you actually track, okay, which one allows, you know, which one actually means that I actually get more conversions, which means that people buy more products or sign up for more, you know, subscriptions or whatever it is that you're looking for. Um, so yeah, I'm going to pretty much be talking about that and how to set that up using ColdFusion library called Squabble and why, why using Squabble's pretty awesome compared to uh, some other A-B testing frameworks and systems out there um, and talk about all that sort of good stuff. I have actually an interesting question which leads back to Sandy's topic in a certain way. Do you actually think A-B testing could be sort of seen as, you know, at least partially an agile technical practice in a similar way like, you know, unit testing, unit testing or, you know, continuous integration and stuff like that could be seen as one of those? Speaking as a non-subject uh, matter expert on agile development practices, um, I could say possibly. Uh, it is well, A/B testing tends to be fairly iterative. Is that kind of what you're driving at? Yeah, basically, I'm driving at you know the the, the fact that if you do lots of iterations, yeah, and try things out and have very very fast turnarounds to deliver yep. a new result. Probably A/B testing is actually a very, very essential technique. Yes, yes I, I would agree with that. Um, especially when you're dealing with systems that are, are currently being used. Um, you know, you're not, you're not. This is not necessarily for a greenfield project. This is probably more for something that's that's currently being used in production against users of some kind, um, either public facing or internal, depending on how how you want to do it. Um, but yeah, if you've got that sort of fast turnaround, you might be like, okay, which version of this is going to be best? You know, maybe it's going to be with this on top. Maybe it's going to be with this on the bottom. Maybe it's going to be with this yeah. side to side. You know, you don't really know. And that's actually the kind of interesting thing about it. We we think we know. We have a pretty good idea. Um, but at the end of the day, real users just do the weirdest stuff in the world. Um, <laughs> they really, really do. We've had some amazing, amazing um, increases in conversions on the, on the system that I've been working on uh, for a long time where we've just changed around like top nav elements. You know, just we've actually kind of just done it as we've put new stuff in. Thought, oh yeah, we'll just we'll chuck a few navigation changes in here and, and, and shift stuff around. And all of a sudden, we're seeing you know huge spikes in conversions just because we've we've changed the way things things happen. And even vice versa, we've built stuff and just gone, this is going to be awesome. We're going to love it. And our users just hate it, can't stand it, don't like it at all. We've had to go back to the drawing board, try out a few different things, and then kind of come back to it and gone, okay, this is what actually works. So it's it's. Great stuff, but in the same time, you kind of have to be able to just let go of your preconceptions and say, um, okay, whatever whatever the users tell me is real is actually real, not necessarily what, what's inside my head. Sandy, mm -hmm. um, what do you think of A-B testing as an agile technique or an agile technical practice? I'm, I think it's a marriage made in heaven. I think I'm not entirely okay. sure that it is agile or not. I don't really mind, but I think it fits in really well with the philosophy where um, from a theoretical point of view, what we try to optimize in Agile is feedback. So if mm -hmm. we have short feedback loop, we optimize feedback and uh, keep ourselves adaptable to, uh, yeah, adaptable to um, 
what users want to um, what uh, what is needed, then uh, this makes perfect sense. And I think that uh, it's it's very very agile to use that to use A/B testing. On the other hand, I think uh, sometimes you have um, systems where you don't need to do A/B testing because yeah. Um, yeah, you only have one group of users, and you don't need this particular way of learning. But I think it's a really really good thing. And um, as far as I know, um, that whole lean startup movement, driven by Eric Reese, which is uh, also mm -hmm part of Agile is making huge use of A-B testing. And I think it's definitely something that will enrich the Agile tool, tool set. Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of work, obviously, in, in e-commerce. That's pretty much what I'm doing mostly these days. Um, so obviously, that's a, that's a big thing because we want to sell more and more and more and more. Um, so quite often, if we are looking at a whole new feature, we'll implement part of it. We don't necessarily go, let's do the whole thing. Let's just see what you know this particular part is. So we don't have to go into a full investment in it, run the A-B test, see whether it you know, does better than what control is, which is what we had before, maybe with a couple of variations. And we can actually, you know, just sort of put our feet in the water and say, okay, is this a good idea or isn't it? Um, you know, and maybe if we get bad results, maybe we try something else or maybe we just go, no, this isn't going to work. Um, and it lets us kind of play with that really nicely, which is really good. Okay. Oh yeah, Kai. I need to get you to do some math for it. Yeah, you you're basically <laughs> pointing that out for quite a while. I need yeah. to have a look at. It was something about statistical testing and statistical variance. Yeah, right? we need to know. Um, it's one thing that we need right now. It's kind of like we just kind of make a gut reaction. We kind of like, all right, we've had two thousand users come through. That's a good enough sample set for us. Um, what we'd actually be able to, would be nice would be able to say, okay, statistically, have we had enough users come through? Do we have enough samples to be able to make a reasonable conclusion from what we're looking at? Um, that's what we could use some extra math for, because I've forgotten most of math I've learned. You could actually hire me. How about that? For an open source project? Yeah, I'll pay you nothing. That's oh, awesome. dude, it's not just <laughs> only an open source project. It's an open source project. Uh, I'll pay you in. Uh, I'll pay you in. Uh, I'll in let you speak. points. The, yeah, comma <laughs> points. I'll let you speak at the conference. There we go. How's that? I'll continue doing a podcast with you. Um, awesome. <laughs> you can pay me in some goods for um, fantasy online role playing games. <laughs> uh, sure, that just sounded a little awkward, but sure, let's go with that. <laughs> Or I'll buy you a drink at the conference. I meant actually Spiral Nights. I didn't oh, think Spiral Nights. Dodgy. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you could do that too. I actually haven't played that in a really long time. Yeah, I mean. So, Kai, what are you talking about? Um, I think I'm talking about um, JVM. You think? <laughs> yeah, it has changed a few times because I was sort of promised that I get a certain talk if I do another certain talk and then that promise fell through and I was stuck with the topic basically. Yep. So I am apparently really finally going to talk about JVM oh. tuning. Do you want to ask some follow-up questions or should I just Keep continue going. to talk? Okay. Cool. So the JVM is the Java virtual machine and as most of you probably know, the JVM is the runtime that ColdFusion is using and that a few other products in the Java space or even in the third-party product space use. And usually what happens is you get your, um, your JVM delivered with the product or server or the tool you're running. And in the vast majority of cases, that JVM is configured by some default settings the vendor or you know the provider of the solution thought 
would be appropriate. The reality shows that that's quite not the case and that um, you can achieve quite a few performance gains when you actually you know, move some of the levers the JVM gives you. And that could be stuff like memory settings or garbage collection algorithms or any sort of other tweaks you can think of. Um, and particularly with Cold Fusion, you find that the default settings you get out of the box work for a pretty much certain set of cases. You know, you have like a single server with a few average mid-sized traffic websites running on them and something like one or two gig of RAM, and then you should be fine most of the time. Um, if you break out of that box, you actually need to you know, tweak settings and change settings. And unfortunately, most people don't really know where to even start because it's sort of um, be considered to be a dark art or something like that. It's not. Kai Koenig, the black sorcerer. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I'm going to talk about, basically. So we'll have a look at, you know, typical, typically made JVM settings and how you change them and where you change them and how you measure success and fail of a certain settings change and stuff like that. Sounds good. Kai, I can actually just ask a question on that out of the blue. Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. We'll see, we'll see how you go, or maybe you can answer this at the conference. I'm just wondering, have you come across the need to configure the JVM differently if you're in a um, virtualized environment versus being on um, hardware directly? Yes. That okay. happens regularly, basically. And the reason is that a virtualized environment normally um, is less grunty than a physical hardware box in terms mm -hmm. of you get those, you know, virtual CPUs, and you can't really pinpoint exactly what a virtual CPU is. It's some sort of mm. a bit of a flurry term, really. You know, it's like, mm, yeah, whatever. I give it four or two or I don't know. Mm. And um, you find that you need a different way of configuring JVMs for that, particularly if you have, let's say, a lot of virtual instances, let's say a lot of virtual machines running Windows each or something, or Linux or whatever, on a hardware box, and you assign like one or two virtual um, CPUs to that to your to your VM, you'll find that the commonly used garbage collector, for, uh, garbage collector particularly for ColdFusion, doesn't work that well. It gives you quite long pauses if you have high traffic. So you want to, you know, look into changing the garbage collector for that environment. And particularly for um, VMware, there is actually a um, a document on running Java on top of VMware that talks a lot about the specifics of running JVMs in a virtual environment, which is a really, really good read. It's like a 20 or 30 page document, not just dealing with JVM settings, but, you know, talking about uh, memory throughput and a whole lot of stuff that's happening differently on a virtual environment compared to a physical environment. Great, interesting. So the answer mm. is yes. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> so Kai, are you, are you telling me the answer isn't just to throw more heap at it? Just more memory. Let's just go 30, you know, we've got 64-bit systems. Why can't we just throw more memory at our, at our servers? Well, you can, but it comes with you know, you pay a price for that, basically, because what usually 
ends up happening is you get a so-called heap fragmentation. So because, well, the, the way a, how a JVM works is basically when you run your server or your app, it creates objects. And those objects end up in a certain area in the memory. And if your objects survive enough garbage collections over time, they move into an area which is called the old generation. And um, garbage collections will happen in that old generation as well with those long-lived objects. But if you have, if you think about a server in particular, which runs 24/7 usually on a quite high load, you have a quite high object churn, and you end up having, you know, the garbage collection, garbage collection cleaning up stuff, cleaning up stuff. But then, you know, gaps stay back, and then those gaps get filled, and your whole memory area gets totally fragmented. And that's one issue um, that you will run into with huge, with huge heaps. And the other thing is. If you think about the garbage collection itself, like, you know, cleaning up all that mess that your application has made in memory, um, you'll find that the garbage collection can take a while. So if you have a small heap, let's say one gig or 512 MB or something like that, that might take two seconds, whatever, just a random figure. In, you know, on an eight gig heap or a 32 gig heap, that might take you know, 60 seconds. And if you choose the wrong garbage collector, that might mean that your application server is actually standing still for 60 seconds, which is mm. usually not what yeah, you want. Right. So, I mean, you know, it always comes with, with pros and cons. I've, I'm working with a lot of applications and servers with large heaps, and it can be a challenge sometimes to get things right and particularly um, deal with variations in load and deal with reasonably complex applications where you have stuff, you know, in in persistent scopes where you use application frameworks that tend to create, you know, a few more objects in memory in the first place. So, you know, it's possible to do, but it's um, it can be tricky. Would you then, and this is slightly getting off topic, but interesting topic of discussion nevertheless, would you then be sort of advocating more stuff that's sort of out of process then or, or distributed across multiple machines? So you're talking about out-of-process caches, for example. Yeah, something like that. Um, it's an option to do that, you know. And sometimes I keep thinking maybe in the long run, even if you have very grunty machines with lots of with lots of memory, maybe it could be you know a valid option depending on your application to run two or three or four cold fusion instances with smaller heaps instead, and then cluster them on one virtual machine even. Yeah. And I know that some people are doing that, and that's a totally viable option from my point of view. It always comes down to you know balance between the overhead of running multiple confusion instances or multiple JVM instances versus just running one on your machine. And it all has pros and cons. And particularly with caching, I mean, um, EH cache, which is you know one of those typical typically used products, it comes with confusion, and so with confusion you usually use it in what's called in memory so it runs in the yeah. same jvm as your as your cold fusion server you can run eh cache um, in a separate jvm that's totally possible but then you need to configure it yourself which again is not really you know rocket science but um the you know the the more effort people have to put into a solution that doesn't come bundled with product x basically um the less people are going to use it or make use of that. That is true. That is very, very true.
Very interesting stuff. Sandy, yeah. how do you feel about distributication? Great. <laughs> and how do you feel about JVM tuning? I'm extremely ex- impressed with you, Kai, that you can talk about this for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, think, I think we actually said last time you were going to come on, which was a while ago, that we would teach you Cold Fusion on the podcast. Yeah, we should do that. We Two, should have another luck. another episode just with Sandy and the two of us, and we teach you Cold Fusion in 45 minutes. Via audio. Via audio. <laughs> <laughs> I think... That's when I want to bring Amnesty International. But it's that easy to learn that I reckon we could do it. We could probably, you know, get her to easily write pages with database access and to spit out information and have, yep. you know, form processing yep. in 45 minutes. Not a problem what? at all. Yep, yep. Okay, challenge is on. Oh, God, what did we just do? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds pretty good. Phil, yeah, have you but, but, any, uh, experience with distributed caching? I know you do a lot of client-side work and stuff like that. but uh... No, not really, actually. It's uh, so one of the things that I want to look at further, but no, it's not something I've, I've looked at too deeply. Sorry, I interrupted you, Kai. What were you about to say? I forgot, actually. That's very useful. It's okay, probably well, then... not really important then. <laughs> I will I will take this opportunity then to make sure to plug our conference uh, simply because Early Bird is ending this week. So if you haven't registered yet, uh, Early Bird enders, ends on Friday. So you might want to get that done and dusted very quickly. And we'll put the reminder out. Once again, President's Cup Golf doohickey is in town. So uh, make sure you get your hotel room booked ASAP so to make sure you get a spot at the hotel. Otherwise, you may end up down the street or who knows where. And you wouldn't want that. That would be unacceptable. I remember one thing. That's not the thing I just forgot. But when I was talking to you about A-B testing, oh, yes. I was actually wondering if there are any useful A-B testing frameworks for Flash and Flex. Okay. And I was just wondering if either Sandy or Phil know anything. Don't ask okay. me once. Hmm? No, it's- no, it's not something I've come across before. Um, I would imagine it would be quite a complex thing to do that in a uh, sort of in, in a, a comp- client side a yeah. compiled application. Yeah. Should I of... put it on my list? Of I think you want people to write. Ah, yeah, on the on the to to do list for the Flex community for you. <laughs> no, but I think it would be actually an interesting thing. You know, the, yeah. the difficult the difficult part would certainly be though. That you need to end up with, like you know, either compiling multiple versions of your app into the same Swift. Yeah, you, or could do that. you could you could do that, or you could you deliver could. different Swifts you know, for for different variations, basically. That's well, the that's, other option. That's true, and you can also, I mean, on, on a Flex app, you can dynamically load Swifts in, so you could yep. uh, attempt to do it that yeah. way as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are definite options there. Hmm. Couldn't you also, um, like? If you do continuous integration, very often you keep your main chunk working and uh, you have incomplete code, but you still want to check in, that you actually hide features. So um, could you actually just have a switch? Very similar to what those guys are doing to have a switch that uh, for some users the switch is on, for some yep. it's off, so they see different things. Or is that more complicated than uh, the other two solutions? Well, I mean, what would it switch off exactly? Like a certain, for show example, certain form so field or... Yeah. Put this on top, put it on down the bottom. I don't know. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, I'm just, you know... You probably just... have issues in MXML, wouldn't you? Because you can't really conditionally... 
It'd make it no, yeah, you couldn't do it in MXML. You could look at no, you were, doing yeah. CSS styling or something like that, or putting a skin on to yep. do that kind of thing. But um, I, I don't know. Are, are there many AB testing frameworks for compiled applications? That's a, that's sort of a more generic question, I guess. I don't know. Mark is the expert on AB testing. Um, I think you'll find the majority of AB testing stuff out there is, well, for HTML apps, are client side. Yeah. Um, which is what I'm going to talk about and actually talk about why I think server side's a million times better. Um, but there aren't that many uh, server side ones out there. I think I found one or two different PHP ones that we looked at. Um, see the PHP or Python, I've forgotten now. See the, there's probably one in Ruby because there's everything in Ruby. Um, <laughs> So we yeah we started we started writing our own for that for that exact reason when it yeah when it comes to doing sort of um, that sort of stuff that's yeah a lot of people just use client side because it it solves some problems and it can make certain things easier um, but when it comes to compiled apps on the client that will probably be a little bit more interesting I would think but an interesting project nevertheless and keep in mind that you still need to feed that data back to the yep. server in some way. Yep, so yep, probably yep. you have to build something into your Flex app that communicates Practic with whatever backend to track, you know, the different variations and where people clicked and all that stuff. I would actually think for for Flex apps and where they tend to sit in the sort of the ecosystem of applications, it probably isn't something you would necessarily be A-B testing all that often. I think it's probably more something that people would see more up front. I mean, you're not you're not generally building, say, like an e-commerce app or something that people are going to subscribe to through a Flex interface. I think you'll find, at least I think with nine times out of ten, you know, if you've got a service that people then log into to get to a Flex interface to do something, maybe like, I don't know, stock trading or something, mm -hmm. you might probably do your A-B testing on the front so you can get more subscriptions and more people using your system. It's that part that you'd probably A-B test because that's your conversion. That's really what you want. Um, and that, that actually impacts on, on... So yeah, there's, there's maybe an interesting argument to be made where where that application actually sits and whether you'd be A-B testing it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you're, you certainly do want to test conversions, like, you know, yeah. people buying something or people subscribing, but probably you still can make use of A-B testing even behind the login or whatever, you know, you're... you're yeah. You're, your money criteria, so that to speak, is, is um, just to figure out how to improve, for example, communication yep. between members in a social network site. Yep. True, true, you know, stuff true. like that. So yep. there are, I think yep. there are scenarios, yep. even if your Flex app sits behind the login, where you yep. might want to do that, potentially. Yep. No, that is that is totally true if you've got something like that, or maybe you have, I, I, I think of things that involve money these days because it's just the space I'm in, but, you know, if you had a stock app for something, you might, you know, be fiddling with certain controls to see if people are more or less likely to actually buy and sell stocks, you know, things like that, which, you know, that sort of stuff. But, yeah, no, that's a very valid point. I would think so, just, just uh, I guess, thinking about that a little more, you, you'd possibly want to do things like um, timing which way is quicker to use an application, potentially, you know, do you have the uh, do you have your UI constructed this way or that way, which is the best way to use the app? And, and for something like a stock trading uh, platform, that's probably a very important thing to, to have to track because they're, you know, they want to trade by the minute or whatever it is they want to do. I think where your biggest difficulty is going to lie is, is something like a mobile app, you know, especially like a native mobile app. Doing A/B testing there is going to be very, very difficult. Oh, that's a very interesting point. Mm. You know, like doing building a native iPhone app or something like that. Yeah. How would you even do that? Unless you're pulling in stuff over the network, I think it'd be very, very difficult. Um, 
or or unless you had something built into the native app itself that said basically, you know, as soon as I first load, I'm going to give users this version, I'm going to give users mm-hmm. that version. Um, the annoying thing there is if if you have a winning version that comes through, then you have to then update them all and say, hey, this is this is the version, which is easier on some platforms and other rather than others. I guess for people doing sort of phone gap applications, however, you know, if that's all HTML delivered, that can be driven server yep. side as well within a within a client app. So it's definitely possible. Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. If you've got an app on say on an iPhone, like if if that's basically a glorified browser pointing at a URL, they tend to have issues getting approved. Is that correct, or am I completely off base there? Um, I don't know. Don't know. No, I don't know. I'm just thinking. I mean, if you have a phone gap app, essentially that's that's a, a native app with all the HTML elements mostly compiled in or packaged in with the application. So yep. um, there's no problem getting those apps approved. But if it's doing nothing more than just emulating, um, you know, being a Safari container or yeah. a native browser container, um, I think they probably do look um, down at that, saying, "Well, just make it a browser app. Don't make it a, a native app." Yeah, yeah, I think I think. Part of the criteria would probably be if you can, if the user can choose the URL. So if you build, if you take the, you know, the web view wrapper from Safari, and build your own browser, I think you will have trouble to get that approved. But if you, I mean, what Phil said, if you use PhoneGap, it basically uses exactly that container yeah. with packaged HTML, JavaScript, CSS files, which are all bundled mm. you know, mm. into the into this into this container. But then the users normally can't break out of that. You know, they basically can look at what you give them in, in that bundle. Actually, it's an interesting question to Sandy, a slight segue there. In, in sort of an agile process where you're building native uh, mobile applications, obviously you have an approval process you can't control. How do you iterate over that quickly? Yep. And, and, and how do you get that, that rapid fire to client sort of stuff? Yep, that's a... Very interesting question. And um, I, I actually it wasn't a project, but we did an iPhone app for a for a bank. And um, the first problem we ran into was again uh, very similar to what Flex developers are facing. The tools and the frameworks aren't there yet. And the other one is um, iterating to actually get feedback. We could um, with Apple for iPhone, you have uh, the ability to um, push out a low number of of um, application instances to to phones that you are, or you have developer phones in your organization, for example, and people can register and it's up to 100 phones, so you can push it out to those. And uh, so you basically have a group of uh, beta testers or users who can give you feedback. And uh, that's very fast and you don't need Apple's approval to do that. It's only to actually prove it, uh, push it to the entire world that you need that. And it's not ideal, but um, kind of worked for us, and I wish yeah, um, Apple would do it faster. In terms of, uh, I just wanted to um, come back to what Kai said before, I think, uh, or your discussion about um, is it if you just point to a website and compile that into a native app, from what I know, they don't look at uh, what's inside the app at all. What they check for is do you um, adhere to rules around metadata and pictures and so on, and do you have any memory leaks or anything that could, well, be um, bad for uh, for the phone this is running on, but not so much what, um, well, is the app good or not good unless it violates any of their weird porn restrictions or moral restrictions. <laughs> mm. But then, I mean, 
they can just look at the content you give them, right? If you give them a browser, basically, then yeah. it's a bit of a different story because they they couldn't really approve, you know, that your app is whatever seventeen plus or thirteen plus in terms of age restrictions and all that stuff. They don't, but I think they have some. Uh, if you um, they have a quick look. I think like if you uh, if it's a porn app, they uh, reject it altogether. You, you can't, yeah, even, I mean, you, you can't yeah. even submit that initially if it's a, a porn app. Not yeah. that I've tried, but yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clear that up, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I think if, and if you've built something that they have delivered, like uh, you've built another browser, they'll reject you, or you build another mail app, for example. Yeah, because I mean, there's got to be apps out there that pull in content over the net. I mean, that's that's just going to be a given. So there's got to be some leeway there to be able to say, okay, generally speaking, you're not going to be putting you know porn or, or anything else on this based on what you've said you're going to do with it. So I can I can kind of understand that. Yeah, the best example is probably actually Wikipedia, because there are mobile Wikipedia apps. They yeah. that pretty much load the mobile version of the Wikipedia website, really, and nothing else. Yeah. No, I was actually thinking about that the other day as, as an option for if, you know, you want to be able to push out updates really, really regularly to people um, through your app. If you've got something that's basically that, it's basically a glorified bookmark for all intents and purposes, that could actually be a really easy way of doing it. Yeah, but that's not really a new concept, right? Because no. that's why we build web apps in the first place, because you can deliver new versions to your clients like... Instantly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But you get the nice benefit of actually having the icon in the list of people's icons. But yes, that's yep. true. Yeah, which is quite nice. Yeah. I've actually tried something like that. It's maybe one step less simple than that. But um, I have an I have an iPhone app in the App Store which um, just reads an XML feeds and uh, displays it on uh, in native Objective C on the phone in an app, and um, it's as simple as it can get. It's one tiny step away from just being this glorified bookmark, and I had no trouble with Apple whatsoever. Getting okay. that. That's pretty cool. I, I think actually Apple are getting uh, close to 2,000 app submissions a day still, so um, I don't think they can spend too much time going through each in a, with a fine-tooth comb. But, um, you know, if, if you do do something bad, they will catch you and uh, eventually and then they will cancel your developer account and then you, you know, you're left out in the cold. So Beat you over in a stick, over the head yeah, of a stick. Exactly. Find yeah. out where you live through GOIP, chase yeah. you down to your house. Yeah, they find Phil's iPhone and, yeah, make it explode <laughs> or something like that. All of a sudden, Phil suddenly spontaneously human combusts. We don't know why. Apple just knows. Is that somehow going to be Phil's fault? Because he does this whole geolocation thing? Yes. Yes, it's all my fault. You blame me. I think so. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, Kai has messaged me secretly and said he's got an event and a job that he wants to talk about. Yeah, to talk about is maybe, you know, a little bit too much. I've just got two things I want to mention. Um, I got an email from Richard Turner-Jones this morning saying they have uh, Brisbane Flash Platform Group on Thursday night. Um, today is actually Tuesday, so Thursday the 29th of September, that is. And they are going to talk about actually mobile web development with jQuery Mobile and Sencha Touch. Quite interesting for a Flash Platform Group, but whatever, you know, who am I to judge them? And the yeah. other thing, um, he pinged me a job 
of um, his current employer, and they are looking for a flex and G2EE software engineer in the mining sector. So someone who's keen on doing flex with a Java backend in an 80-20 mixed, 80% flex, 20% Java, and a whole bunch of job require, uh, requirements like you know proficiency in different versions of different technologies, et cetera, et cetera. And that role is in Brisbane. I've actually got another job that came across uh, my Twitter feed the other day, so I might as well mention it here. It's a cold fusion position in Melbourne working for Thomas Routers. Um, they're looking for someone with strong cold fusion HTML and MS SQL experience. Uh, also desirable is subversion and agile development and test-driven development experience. So uh, links to that will be on the show notes as well. Do you actually know those guys or is it, was it just like a random find? Um, I know one of the, I used to work with one of the guys who works there now. Um, oh, okay. and, and he posted on his Twitter feed and I saw it that way. So I figured I'd make a mention of it. Cool. Should we put those two links maybe into the blog post and people can grab it? Yep. Because I've agree. got a link to the job posting and Yeah, I sent you the link on Skype already. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, I think wrap things up there. Yep. That sounds good. Um, again, going to plug the conference just because can. See if Objective ANZ and the registration for Early Bird ends on Friday, Friday, Friday. There could almost be a song. Um, and anything else you want to quickly mention, Kai? Um, no, I'm pretty much good. Pretty much good. Okay, Phil, if people want to contact, reach you, bug you, irritate you in any way, shape, or form, where can they reach you? Uh Best place these days is to try and track me down on Google+. Phil Heusler is my name, and I'll spell that H-A-E-U-S-L-E-R. Um, or get me on Twitter, Phil Heusler, as well. Wonderful. Sandy, where can people otherwise harass you? Can happily harass me on Twitter. I'm uh, at Smamol, or my email address is um, sandy at nomad8.com. Very, very good. Kai, what are your usual details? Um, Twitter, Agent K, um, Kai at Ventigo-Creative, CoinZ is my email, or my totally underutilized um, blog, blogginblack.de. Wonderful. When was the last time you blogged something? It's slightly more than a year ago, apparently. <laughs> that's that's and I, I got like I got like a... <laughs> A notification of that by my lovely wife the other day. It's, like, <laughs> it's more than a year ago that you blocked. <laughs> Slap. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. If people want to reach me, uh, compoundtheory.com. Reach me on Twitter as Neurotic. I'm on Google+. You can reach me at mark.mandel. Um, if people don't know, you can go to profiles.google.com slash mark.mandel or people's names, and it'll short short link to that. Um, and so that's pretty much me in a nutshell. For those of you who are also Jewish, it's Rosh Hashanah or Jewish New Year this this weekend or this week end of week Thursday and Friday. So I wish you all a Shana Tova Metuka, a good and sweet year to everyone involved. Um, and I think that's all that I have to say, really. Cool. So you have fun with your celebrations. I will do. And um, we'll probably speak next week. Oh, actually, next week before we finish, next week um, Adobe Max is on. Yes. And what I'm going to oh, you'll be there. Uh, I am going to be there. I'm, but what I'm also trying to do is to do a few recordings and interviews with people over there. Awesome. And maybe we even get a live show in. Cool. So, depending on how it goes and how the internet is, actually. Wonderful. I'm not cool. sad at all that I'm not going to be there. Not sad at all. 
Well, see, you went last year and I couldn't for a variety of reasons, basically. Yes. So, you know, People are going to start to think we're the same person because we can't be in the same place at the same time. It's really hard, isn't it? Yes. Have we seen each other this year at no, all? No, because you were no, with you and I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, enough of us mumbling on. Thank you very much, Sandy and Phil, for joining us today. Yep, thanks a lot for joining us in this awesome little show. And uh, we'll... Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me too. Yay. Was... And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll speak to you all and speak to literally to you all soon. Okay, see you soon, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.